Hello, and welcome to another episode of Revolutionary Dispatches. I'm Catherine Wright. And I'm David Bryan. Hello. Hello. How are you, David? Pretty good. We always do this slightly artificial thing, where we, of course, ask ourselves... Ask ourselves? Yes. No. Ask, ask one, one another, another. Yeah. how we're doing <laughs> when we first connect the call. Yeah, yeah, we we ask each other how we're doing when we start the call, and then we also ask each other how we are when we start recording. Because <laughs> mm. it would seem rude not to do so when you started the call, but then it also sort of feels rude not to do so when yeah. you start recording as well. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I don't know. I think we're just too British. Yeah, yeah. Always um, err on the side of being more polite than you need to be. I think so. Unless your interlocutor is a fascist. Yes. Then always err on the side of being more anti-fascist than you need to be. <laughs> yeah. God. I sound so posh. I, occasionally, it's, occasionally it strikes me. Because I know I, I know intellectually that I have a very posh accent, which is entirely artificial. Like, my family don't speak like this. But at the same time, it's, it's not deliberate. It's just how I've ended up talking. I think because I watched too many episodes of QI when I was younger. It's the same with me. I, I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> when I was younger, I used to have a stronger accent, but university does this too, I think. No, I was always like this. I always had a very RP-sounding accent, despite right. coming from a place which has more of a kind of... Somewhere in, it's sort of the meeting point of the Estuary English and the kind of Hampshire accents kind of right, merge right. in Farnborough. But yeah, I think no. over the time that I've known you, it's got more RP. I remember when I first met you thinking that it was a bit Hampshire-y. But then again, right. that was also before I'd... That was, I'd only just moved to, um, to, to somewhere that wasn't Essex. <laughs> So I was hypersensitive to all the differences. And you'd moved to Hampshire. Mm. Of course, well, we both went to university, where I had also lived since I was born. So maybe that's it. I don't know. Anyway, I think probably it might be sort of me, me being a little less sort of matey. Right, right. Yes. Since, since my transition, darling. <laughs> well, I think it... But no, seriously, because you sort of you sort of do the sort of... When you're, when you're a bloke, you sort of do the sort of, all right, how you doing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, mate, how you doing? <laughs> and I think yeah, that comes across... involved. I, I yeah. I think that... Um, being on a podcast, you, uh, I feel like I'm broadcasting, so I have to use my professional voice. <laughs> the BBC English. Yes. Yeah. There you go. Have you been doing anything interesting of late? I haven't been doing anything interesting. I have, I've taken to um, taking my phone and putting it in the cupboard so I can't see it. And then going, right, and deciding on a time that I'm going to get it out again. That's usually like four hours later or something. In order to try to train myself to just use it less and think about it less. Because I always do this of, of I'm trying to train myself to get back into the habit of of tolerating sort of micro-boredom, which is a really mm. basic part of, of the texture of everyday human life, is letting your mind wander rather than filling it with a podcast or a YouTube video or something. Don't say that. No, <laughs> no fill it no, with no, podcasts. No. Fill it with our podcast. Always fill it with, yeah, fill it with my wandering thoughts, not your yeah. own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's good, and it has meant that I've been reading a lot more. That's good. Yes. I, I always set myself... Previously, I've always set myself a, tar- uh, a target of reading a book a week, um, which compared, like, compared to when I was, you know, 12, 13. 12, 13 year old me would laugh at a book a week. You know, a book a day would, been, would have been more, yeah. the, more the thing then, but I, I can't I can't hack that kind of rate of reading anymore. My brain's been broken by adulthood and oh, social I'm, media. I'm very much a uh, read seven books at the same time sort of a person. <laughs> I used to be. I, I, I try not to now, but I used to use, uh, yeah, I used to have three or four on the go at any given moment. It is quite good, um, but it requires you to read a lot, because otherwise you'll you'll lose track of... Mm. In order to be reading any one of the books fast enough to keep the thread of it, 
you have to be reading a lot all the time yeah if, if you've got seven on the go at the same time if you are doing that it is fine like it's quite good because tv shows people watch people don't watch one tv show from the beginning to the end before watching any other tv shows i Switch do back and forth that's fine well yeah but some people do some people don't but <laughs> but it's considered fairly normal and also some of the books are fiction and some are non-fiction like they're just because they're all books they're quite different, different enough threats. that it's not yeah. yeah that's fair enough but i need to, i need to step i need to step my reading back up because i'm starting my phd in a couple of weeks right, right. anyway all being well i need to step my reading way back up I need to get back to what if i'm going to read for my for my work and read for pleasure as well it needs to get back up to the kind of rate it was when i was younger i think mm. so otherwise i'm just otherwise i'm going to end up only reading what i need to for my phd and not having time for anything else i don't think i'm going to enjoy that too much um, not that I don't, you know, not that I don't enjoy that stuff too. It's just you need to decompress occasionally. Yeah, certainly. One, yeah. one book I've only started reading recently, but I'm really getting through it at very, very quick speed, quicker than I do most books, is Yanis Varoufakis' new book. What's it called? Mm. Another Now Dispatches from an Alternative Present. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a sort of, it's a, it's kind of a fiction book, but the fiction is a framing device for him to talk about alternative economic models. Mm-hmm. Um, so the framing device is that one of his characters is this sort of scientist type slightly sci-fi individual and he discovers a way to communicate with another version of himself in an alternative universe where huh. um, that was exactly the same as our universe up until the 2008 crash when they diverged and their universe moved into an anti-capitalist not anti-capitalist a post-capitalist kind of social order um, mm-hmm. and ours is ours right so hence dispatches from an alternative present it's very interesting I, I would recommend it to anyone Funky, yeah. I think this is probably a good moment to plug the fact that we're going to be starting a Revolutionary yeah. Dispatches book club. Yes. So I did that... not plan this, but it turns out that's actually turned out quite well. <laughs> yeah, we did mention this briefly at the end of an episode a couple of a couple of episodes ago, I think. But yeah, no one listens to the end, so let's do it at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, the 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 plan is to to do a, a, another podcast in parallel to this one, um, which will involve. The two of us, plus a friend of ours and actually my partner, uh, all four of us sitting down and reading a book um, and then discussing it for an, mm. an hour, whatever it ends up being. Um, we're going to start nice and easy with the Communist Manifesto. Classic, so, absolute classic. Absolute classic. You know, you've got to start somewhere and why not Why? Why not start there? I'm going to read that properly and take notes before we do it, but I also just got out my copy of it and just started randomly reading the beginning of it without the intention of finishing the book or paying attention mm. and it's, it's really good it is well written it is extraordinarily well written yeah no it is it is very well written um the thing about i mean the thing about marx is 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 he is a very good writer hmm. i think a lot of people don't realize that because they just read they start reading capital yeah and then they which is so they technical. give up but but the, the, the sort of back half of Capital is really is really interesting and quite yeah, spicy yeah. And, and it is where we're written. It's just you've got to slog through two hundred pages of quite technical economics in order to understand it. Um, and so yeah, that is the problem with Capital. I think is that it's front loaded with a lot of dense technical material, which mm-hmm. means that a lot of people never actually get to the good bits. Whereas the manifesto starts with this incredibly dramatic sort of yeah. casting of the whole of history, and also the rhythm of the sentences is like it's good prose as well. Yeah, well, it's based on an earlier draft that Engels wrote I think as well so I do wonder how much of how much of right, the sort right. of turn of phrase is Marx's and how much is Engels because the reason it's co- co-credited to Marx and Engels is because the original there, there was an earlier pamphlet that Engels wrote and then Marx used that as the basis for the Communist Manifesto um, mm-hmm. so 
I wonder how much he ended up taking over from the original. And then, of course, Engel's, ba- Engel's job in the sort of final writing process itself was basically just make sure Mark's finished the damn thing. Because yeah, otherwise he never would that. have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was that was Engel's job throughout much of much of their later friendship, I think, was just to A, give him some money every now and again when he could, just stop him, stop him dipping below the poverty line yeah, yeah. Too, too frequently, and then B, to just get him to finish stuff. It's the Cavalier Roundhead distinction again. Comes up everywhere. The Cavalier Roundhead? You've lost me there. Oh, right. Well, well it's this old... I know that they're not English, but... Um... There's an old idea that since the Civil War, there has been this kind of divide in English culture that can be summed up as basically cavalier roundhead, and it shows up absolutely everywhere. And it, right. especially, my most, it's it's kind of half jokey idea, but it, it mm-hmm. definitely shows up in like double acts a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. And you can kind of right. you can kind of ballpark putting most double acts. I meant comedic ones, but actually, kind of any thing where there's two people who work together a lot, kind of into you can kind of ballpark them like. Um, Blair and Brown, Corbin and McDonnell, mm. um, but also Morecambe and Wise and Fry and Laurie, <laughs> and the kind of the the voluptuous partying Anglo-Catholic and the windswept, more serious Protestant type. <laughs> mm. Well, so so I suppose so. Who are you saying is the is the, uh, is the Cavalier and the Roundhead in Marks and Engels then? Oh, that Marks the Cavalier and Engels Marks the, the Cavalier. Yeah, Engels was polyamorous. Yeah, I know they were both actually kind of a bit like that, weren't they? Yeah, they, they, Engels is a sort of uh, an early sort of proponent of polyamory. I he I think he probably partied more than Marx did. Marx drank more than Engels did, but he drank yeah. more than most people. Uh, <laughs> who's a cavalier in the round head between us then? Uh yeah, that is quite difficult, isn't it? I remember I was talking to Adam Fry about this once, oh, God. <laughs> and 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 um, I can't remember what our conclusion was, but we both sort of were arguing for the opposite way round for you and me. <laughs> Yeah, so I don't know. I don't know. Once upon a time, I used to be quite the party animal, but I haven't. I haven't been out, you know, drinking or anything in in mm-hmm. about two two years. Which so maybe it's flipped. Maybe it used to be. Maybe I used to be the cavalier, mm. but now I've become more serious and sober. But then on on the other hand, I don't know. That is an interesting one. And I've started calling communion mass. So have you? Oh. <laughs> Goodness gracious! <laughs> Following the Anglo-Catholic. Scandalous to, to alt right pipeline. <laughs> oh god! <laughs> oh dear. Well, there we go then. I don't even know what I mean by that. It's just funny. <laughs> it is just yeah. It's just funny. I don't think it needs to mean anything. Yeah. <laughs> right. We should probably start with the politics. Yeah, we've covered the Anglo Catholic to alt right pipeline. Now let's yeah. move on to current affairs. Now yeah. To plug yeah. in the book group. Yeah. When we start the book club, listen to that. Yeah. But currently, listen to this podcast, which we will now actually start. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't think... The problem with doing a podcast in you know, today's world, David, is there's just no news to talk about. None. None um, whatsoever. It's silly Nothing's season. really happened in the last week and a half. Um... It's the end of history for Guillaume was right. <laughs> I had to read that. Did you? Yeah, well, I did a history degree, didn't I? So I had to uh, read yeah. that. They made us read it in first year. <laughs> Not all of it, but like... That seems perverse, to make history students read the end of history. Yeah, I think that was the idea. I think someone had a sense of humour. Not a very good one, but they had Yeah, one. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, I, to be honest with you, I think that's a good sense of humour. It's just, it's not very funny for the people. It's more like a practical joke being played on you, so it's not funny to you. <laughs> yeah, maybe that was it. But yeah, so, unfortunately, the... <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. there has Unfortunately been some... all that was sarcasm, yes. <laughs> yeah, there has been some news. Um, 
it also, it, much like the corona, when we talk about the coronavirus, it seems almost perverse to explain the news, but I suppose people could yeah. be listening to this in the future. So as usual, I'll pretend that you've been sleeping under a rock for the last week. Um, on the 6th of January, some... The first day of Epiphany Tide. Yes, quite. I'm sticking to my Anglo Catholic line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I took down I took down all, all all the Christmas cards and things on, on, on the, six, the morning of the sixth of January. <laughs> Don't worry. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> like clockwork. Um but um yeah, on the sixth of January some interesting gentlemen gathered in Washington DC, the capital of our cousins land across the seas that they stole, and um decided on the advice of aforementioned reality TV star and ex-real estate mogul um, Donald Judas Trump. I'm sticking <laughs> to his middle name being Judas in my head canon, even though I know it's not. That they would pop along to the Capitol building and have a poke around. Um, and the fact that this is not, strictly speaking, allowed uh, didn't seem to bother them too much. <laughs> so, yeah. Um... Donald Trump essentially incited a riot. Yes. Uh, claiming, as he has been doing since the, the election, uh, was finally called on November the 7th. So, at this point, this happened for two months. That the election was stolen from him, that he had in fact won, and votes were miscounted or illegally cast or various other things, none of which are true. Yeah. Worth pointing out, no evidence for any of these things that was presented. And they have really tried. They've been pulling it oh, through all the courts. Nothing has come of any there's been no evidence at any point suggested presented yeah having having previously directed his most fervent supporters to assemble in washington dc he at this point in his speech suggested that they might perhaps like to take things to the capitol and so the crowd moved to outside the capitol building whereupon the capitol police put up the barest token resistance before opening the barriers and allowing the mob uh, by this point, of insurgent pro-Trump protesters mm. <laughs> uh, to sort of swarm into the Capitol building. Uh, at this point, things moved from being a protest to being essentially an impromptu insurrection. Senate was evacuated. Hmm. So what, what was happening inside Congress at, at the same time was the, the confirmation of the Electoral College votes. So the actual certification of Joe Biden as being president was being certified by Congress at the time. People had called in advance of this for Mike Pence, the vice president, to um, essentially refuse to certify the votes from certain states, which would have prevented Joe Biden from being declared president. He pointed out in a statement that he actually had no constitutional authority to do this, that his position presiding over the Senate as it certified these results was essentially ceremonial. And uh, and so given that, uh, the, the pro-Trump insurgents moved into the capital, some of whom chanting, where's Mike Pence? Um, mm. The Senate and Mike Pence were evacuated. The House of Representatives, unfortunately, was not able to be evacuated straight away, and so they had to uh, shelter in place. They were advised to put on their emergency gas masks in case tear gas needed to be used, and to hide under their chairs. Mm -hmm. The Trumpists moved throughout the capital fairly freely, uh, there were armed police preventing them from accessing the House of Representatives, but they did breach the Senate chamber. They also uh, made it to the offices of several high-profile politicians, including Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, uh, including uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a prominent left-wing House Democrat. 
they stole some post or mail for our American listeners. Mail. Um, mail. They stole some mail from Nancy Pelosi's office. They accessed several computers, which, uh, having been abandoned in such a hurry, haven't been um, properly secured. They stole numerous items, including bollards and a lectern, I think, and various mm. other piece- bits and pieces um, from around the building. Several were heard to be asking uh, and receiving directions to various people's offices from <laughs> members of the Capitol Police, um, who, once they had breached Capitol building, reacted in, shall we say, a less than totally effective manner. Mm. Um, should be said that one member of the Capitol Police was beaten to death with a fire extinguisher. Yeah. It's worth mentioning how this, how it did get quite chaotic and violent. Um, that there was there was gunfire inside the Capitol, I think actually inside the Senate chamber as well. Yes. Um, four, four members of the sort of pro-Trump mob were killed. Um, yeah. I believe one of them fell from was a wall while attempting shot. to scale it. Yeah, one was yeah. shot. One tased himself in his own testicles. Yeah. Um, that shouldn't really laugh at that. He's fine. <laughs> It's fucking funny, come on. But there was also, on the same day, two IEDs discovered at the DNC and the RNC. And yes. And what I saw initially described as, a D, as an IED at the Capitol building, but I was like, that was a Molotov cocktail, which is not quite what you imagine when you think of an IED. But technically, No, although I suppose it is technically an yeah. IED, but yeah. Um, several members of the sort of insurgency were photographed with uh, zip ties about their person, which... Suggest they were going to try and kidnap someone, right? Yes, they were. They were intending to take hostages. They were fortunately we know, we know doing this so, but... movement. Like, what was what was the thing that I'm now remembering about? There was a plan to kidnap the governor of Michigan. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So we know that that kind of thing is for their form for that. <laughs> yeah. No, quite. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Donald Trump was called on to condemn the uh, insurgents and to tell them to go home. He initially refused to do so. Then he eventually released a statement in which he did tell them to go home, but sandwiched that instruction with repeating the baseless claim that the election had been stolen from him, which of course only inflamed tensions further. And I think he also used the words, we love you, you're very special. Yeah, he did right. use those exact words. <laughs> to, the, to the protesters, yeah. Yeah. Eventually the Capitol building was cleared, uh, several people were arrested with the Opera Mini, um, and it has been somewhat gratifying to watch uh, several members of the insurgency uh, attempt to board aeroplanes uh, in the subsequent uh, days and being told that, in fact, they cannot because they are on no-fly lists pending mm. criminal investigation, yes. which should really have anticipated, but of course, being mostly white men, it never occurred to them that they could possibly be... Yeah. That's not uh, what the law's for. No, exactly. Well, was one person at literally um, while uh, being sort of um, pinned to the ground by the police... Um, I literally cried out, you know, you can't treat me like this, I'm not a fucking black person. Yeah. Um, which, I think they call that saying the quiet part out loud. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's sort of what happened. Um, <sighs> so it's quite difficult to take this, uh, to, to decide how seriously to take this kind of situation. Because on one level, it's so ridiculous. They sort of, they broke into the Capitol building successfully, and then there was quite a bit of violence, but it was also, like, completely aimless. They just sort of wandered about. Yeah. Right? And they, they, they had no coherent demands. Mm. Um, apart from overturn the election. But also, that's a very that's quite a specific demand, but it's not very coherent. Like, 
what do they mean? What do they actually want to be done here? Yeah. Um, but at the same time, what occurred was a group of heavily armed right-wing militants stormed the Capitol building in an attempt to overturn the results of a democratic election, which is a coup, right? So there was a... So describing it as a riot slightly under... Both overplays and underplays how serious it was, right? Yeah, I mean, riot... Riot, I think, has different connotations. I prefer yes. the term insurgency. Yeah. Or if you want to borrow a term from German, putsch. This yeah, was essentially putsch. the beer hall putsch. Yes. And and it, and it played out in many of the same ways. The absurdity of it, the unplanned nature of it, the fact that no one really seemed to know what they were doing, the fact that members of the security forces, sort of some of them cooperated with the putschists and some of them tried to mount a defence, and it wasn't really clear what the official line was for some time. Um in many ways, this does resemble the the, the beer hall putsch. The, the main difference being, of course, that um, instead of trying to uh, impose a government under Adolf Hitler that wasn't currently in place, they were trying to maintain the government of Donald Trump, who yeah. was currently the president. So I suppose that's the main difference, and that's why you know you didn't really have a single figurehead of the of the of the insurgency at the Capitol. Um, and so there probably won't be the kind of big show trial that you get that you got afterwards. Although, maybe they, maybe the. So we should go on to say that um, impeachment proceedings are in the process of. Uh, so Nancy Pelosi has uh, issued an ultimatum to Mike Pence. Um, there's going to be a vote to uh, tomorrow as we're recording, which will be Wednesday, the thirteenth of January, um, on a House resolution to call on. The vice president to invoke the 25th amendment and remove Donald Trump from office. Mm. That is extraordinarily unlikely to happen and Nancy Pelosi has said that if he doesn't do that within 24 hours then impeachment proceedings will begin in the house um, which is extremely likely to pass. So Donald Trump probably within a week's time or so will be the first and only president in US history to have been impeached twice. Yes. Um, the question is will the Senate convict? Um hard to say they didn't convict him last time but also uh he very nearly got some of them some of the people the actual individual people in the senate killed <laughs> yeah so it's possible that some of them might well, yeah i mean the senate's not currently in session and in order to be called back into session ahead of time the entirety of the senate would have to agree to that which is unlikely to happen since many of them are republicans who are aligned with trump hmm. um which probably means that they won't reassemble until the 19th i think i know i think i think the shortest time frame on which a trial in the senate could begin um it would be the 19th which is only a day before biden's inauguration anyway right. so probably it looks as if he won't be convicted and removed from the presidency while in office right so the the reason why this is significant is because if someone is successfully impeached they can't stand for office again well no okay so this is the thing right so it's slightly more complicated than that, um, because there is nothing in the Constitution that says you can't impeach someone after they've left office for actions they committed while in office. And in fact, that has mm. been done in the past to uh, federal judges. At least two federal judges right, have yes. been impeached and convicted after having left office already. So what they um, impeach him in the House, then hold a trial in the Senate after he's left office and he is convicted, then there could be a further vote... And that further vote can prevent him from standing for office ever again. So there's actually a separate vote, but that that second vote 
is on a straight party line. Or it's on a simple majority, so it could it could go right. through on a straight party line vote. The former vote would require two thirds of the Senate. So it's a bit up in the air. Democrats are talking about waiting until after the first hundred days of Biden's presidency have elapsed because they don't want to interfere with Biden's sort of initial. Um, they don't want to overshadow his first yeah hundred, his first hundred days, else. which is considered sort of symbolically important. So people like Jim Clyburn, who's one of the whips for the Democrats in the House, is talking about um, impeaching Trump now and then withholding the articles of impeachment until after the first hundred days of Biden's presidency, then sending them up to the Senate. Then the trial would begin, um, and then he could be convicted. Can't be removed from office because he's already been he's not in office. But then, if he were convicted on a two thirds of the Senate vote. Of his uh, impeachment of the impeachment, then on a second strict majority vote, he could be barred from ever standing for election again, uh, which would prevent him from running in twenty twenty four, which he has sort of threatened to do. Um, so yeah, it's a bit complicated, but that mm. is the current state of play with the sort of political maneuverings. Again, I think it's very unlikely he would be convicted. Um, a few Republicans have said they would they would vote. To convict him in the Senate, people like uh, Lisa Mikowski, Susan Collins. When does the new Congress take session, right? Because the because the Democrats, if it's a simple majority for the second vote, then it matters whether the Democrats have control of the Senate. I think the new Congress takes session in a few days, but until Kamala Harris is sworn in on the twentieth, um, the they wouldn't have a majority because they right, need Kamala Harris to break the tie. Break. Yeah. So until yeah. Kamala Harris is sworn in um, on the twentieth. Uh, they, the Mitch McConnell remains majority leader, um, hmm. even though Congress, the new Congress itself, is sit- seated a few days earlier, I believe. But yeah, so he's all nasty. It, it all rests on whether you consider him, um, whether you consider him to have incited the riot, right? And I think there's a strong argument for saying that it is. But is there a, a, would it meet the legal standard for convicting? Hard to say until that trial actually progresses. Well, I mean, he doesn't need to be. He doesn't. He doesn't need to meet the legal standard for the Senate trial. It would if they were to try and prosecute him in the courts. But in the Senate trial, they can convict him on a, you know, on well, whatever yeah, standard judgment. of proof they yeah. like. Um, the Senate isn't bound by the principle of beyond reasonable doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, they can they can just decide. Uh, so, I think I think in a in a Senate which was reasonably, you know, in in a Senate which which wasn't in this current moment of extreme hyperpartisanship. I think, you know, if, if for example, Nixon had done this, um, right. if, if this had happened in Nixon's presidency, like, instead of Watergate, it had been an incitement to riot, uh, like an incitement to sort of breach the Capitol, then I think he would un- undoubtedly have been convicted. Yeah. Um, but I just can't, I can't see that happening with with, with, with the Senate no, now, no, because no. you would I, need, I unlikely, yeah. you'd need, um, yeah, you'd need 17 and I think whether Trump's able to stand break. again, and then also the question of if he stands again, um, even if he can't or doesn't, Trump's style politics is going to be a long-running permanent feature of the Republican Party. So a, another Trump type would stand, will be standing at the next Republican primary, Yeah. regardless of whether it's Trump, whether because he chooses not to or whether he's unable to legally. Yeah, I mean, there's been some talk about, oh, will Republicans sort of pull back from... Trump and Trumpism after this. I think certain sections of the party will, but not, you know, there are other sections of the party yeah. which are committed to this policy program. I think it's now. very likely that there will be an internal division in the party like we haven't seen for a while, right? Yeah. Um, and kind of it's always been like that. The Republican Party is a really divided thing. But there is, there, 
winning has a great power to bring people together, right? <laughs> because as, well as, yep. as long as Trump was able to keep winning them elections, the people that didn't really like Trump, Republicans, were to a great extent willing to go along with him anyway, mm-hmm. right? As long as he's not, yeah. win- now that they're not winning, there's very likely that they'll turn on each other, right? I think so. And also uh, the fact um, that they, they lost in Georgia as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so zooming out a bit further, there's something that I've been saying for a while about the Trump uh, um, phenomenon and about, uh, I think the last time I mentioned this was when we were talking about the the plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan, um, was that in my reading of it, the Republican Party and Trumpism are not fascism, but they have been acquiring the features of fascism steadily since about like the early 70s. And what I said at the time was the next step will be paramilitary violence, right? <laughs> and I think this looks like this is this is that process in uh, happening. I mean, this isn't what happened in the Capitol building is not the same thing as the Republican Party has its own equivalent of the black shirts yet, but this is the this is this is what the Republican Party has been doing, is that it's been a slow burn moving towards fascism. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is the latest, biggest step in that direction. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, these people weren't organised. The next attack no. might be. That That's the difference between a mob, which is what we saw on the 6th, and an organised paramilitary like the SA. Hmm. The, 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 the organisation, the direction... Which yeah. there was a lot of people, and they were heavily armed, and the, and there was lots of Congress were in there. So if they'd been more organised and known what they wanted more, what they could have done, they could have kidnapped some senators, and then hunkered down in a room somewhere in Congress and refused to come out until certain demands had met. And then you've got a way ten times more serious situation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. That could easily have happened. It could have gone on for days, weeks. Yeah. And 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 so, this is. I mean, I think this is the point to bring up the police. The fact that the police, A, despite the fact that it had been announced in advance that this protest was going to occur, obviously no one knew it was going to turn into this kind of attempted coup, but it, the protest itself, for January the 6th, had been announced in advance. There were people printing jumpers with MAGA Civil War January the 6th on, so something big had been planned for January the 6th, that was known. Given that, A, the fact that the police did not turn out in force to protect the Capitol building, which they did do for the Black Lives Matter protests in June and July, demonstrates that they, at the at the at best, they do not take right wing threats of violence nearly as seriously as they do left wing. It also, to my mind, demonstrates that the police have some degree, at least, of sympathy with white nationalism, which is the stated aim of a lot of these protesters. Hmm. I mean, there were people with explicitly Nazi, neo-Nazi and, and like references to yeah. Auschwitz and stuff on their t-shirts. Yeah, uh, uh, there, was a, there were Confederate flags. And they, I mean, you know, so I saw someone posted on Twitter saying, you know, talking about the Civil War and how many people fought and died to make sure that that flag would never be flown in the US Capitol. And mm. now it has been, you know. Um, and pe- yeah, people had Nazi symbology with them, you know. And some of these people were just, I have no doubt, regular, pretty hardline conservative, but like sort of not openly white nationalist mm. people who are caught up in the moment and dragged along. But enough of them were committed white nationalists, white supremacists, armed militia, 
uh, there were elements of the Christian nationalist right there. There were ele- there were um, people who believed the sort of QAnon conspiracy that um, essentially the the U.S. government and the mm-hmm. world are being controlled by a group of Satan worshipping, child abusing. It, it basically it's the protocols of the elders of Zion warmed over for the twenty first yeah, century. Yeah, totally. It's it's extremely anti semitic in its sort of and with, with the anti semitism pushed one layer more more obscured, right? Yeah. They don't explicitly say Jews, but they... No. Well, I mean, lots of the, of the lots things of that people do, have always... Yeah. Well, a lot of them do, actually. Yeah, yeah but but yeah. But there were a lot of people, um, you know, one of the pe- photographs that been going around said the guy with the horns and the fur, where he calls himself the Q yeah. shaman. Um, mm. But yeah, there were elements of these sort of organised far-right groups there. The police, if they were doing their job properly, knew they were going to be there. And they didn't turn out in force, and when they arrived, they folded very quickly. Now, okay, yeah, a few police did put up a fight. That, that guy who was beaten to death, you know, yeah, he wouldn't have been beaten to death if he'd given in. So I'm not saying it's all of them, but it's never, that's never been the thing with the police. It's never been every single policeman is a fascist. It's the institution itself sympathizes with and, and serves the aims of fascism. And I think that this demonstrates that. It just demonstrates that the, the police as an institution were A, not taking this seriously enough, and that B, a large percentage of the membership of the organisation, and in a lot of ways the organisation itself as a whole, are in sympathy with the aims of far-right movements and these sort of armed proto-fascists. And, I mean, you can see that. I mean, the, the, the head of the Capitol Police resigned over this sort of level of incompetence shown but um you can see it. there was the there were at the same time there were also protests and uh and and sort of a similar attempts to breach state capitals in various states um i think there was there was an interview with the chief of the uh, pennsylvania capital police he had a QAnon mug in the background mm. of the interview and he knew that was there Right, he you know, he put that there to signal to people yeah, watching yeah. that interview that what I'm saying doesn't matter. You know, I'm I'm saying these platitudes of like, oh yes, it's terrible, it's never happened again. We'll do better next maybe time. He's cute, but he doesn't. Well, maybe, but he doesn't mean <laughs> it. He puts that mug in the background to yeah, signal yeah, to you. That's what it means. To signal to the to the far right people watching that actually I'm on your side. And there were off-duty police weak. officers present present at the uh, as part of the mob. You know, um, several of them have, have been now fired but there were, pro- there were probably more present who were never caught on camera and who will still be active uh, active duty service personnel going forward so the police are riddled with this kind of far right and the, the military too although at least in america i think the police probably more thoroughly because the police are so thoroughly militarized well, in the states that they're essentially yes. a second and there's a different history to the institutions as well. yeah absolutely yeah so there's been a certain amount of consternation about whether to call this fascism or not. And on one level, I have some sympathy with be- with hesitating to use the term because I think that there is a tendency to try to, to, to try to fit emerging phenomena into categories that we already sort of know what they are and understand. Mm-hmm. And say, oh, this is the same thing as happened in the 30s, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when it, there are important differences, right? But it's specific to this context. But at the same time, we shouldn't be... Um, we shouldn't shy away from pointing out the very real parallels, right? <laughs> and things that they seriously have in common. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I think certain cases are, are sort of fairly arguable, right? Like people who have actual Nazi uh, symbols, you yeah, know, yeah, who exactly. sort of self-identify as Nazis or as fascists. You know, that's a clear case. Um, hmm. But then, it's, it's always been the case also that, that you can't just understand fascism as 
as like um, as a coherent theory or like body of of theory and praxis and stuff like you can with something like socialism because uh, it's a you've got to understand it as an as an actually emerging f- phenomenon in the world which includes political elements and theoretical elements and stuff but it's very incoherent always it's fascism it's a kind of it's a it's a it's a you i suppose you could understand it as like a disease that can a condition that can grip societies sometimes and it has and it's very it doesn't have a single core from which everything else comes it's a it's a it's a dynamic phenomenon right? i mean i think all ideologies are like that um yeah, yeah but totally. fascism perhaps particularly so i would encourage everyone to go and read um the classic umberto eco essay the fascism and then also to go and watch mm. uh, ian danskin from innuendo studios youtube video explaining oh, yeah, what yeah, white fascism true. is um i'll link both of those in the show notes um because i think that demonstrates and in particular um uh danskin's video sort of um he, he draws attention to the point that in many ways what matters is not are these people fascists but are they doing fascism are they yeah, advancing yeah, fascist causes fascist ideology fascist motifs fascist style fascist rhetoric um and are they having the effects on marginalized communities that fascists want to have um and i think the answer is is an overwhelming yes yeah. in the case of not only donald trump's administration itself but also even more so in many cases a lot of these groups that support him and, 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 and came out on january 6th there's also a um there's a paper i've kept going back to recently mm. um from uh, called the five stages of fascism mm-hmm. which is quite influential on this yeah and i've i've just as you're speaking i've got up the five stages as as is robert paxton wrote it right um and i'm just going to read out the five stages and see if they ring any bells <laughs> for this one intellectual exploration where disillusionment with popular democracy manifests itself in discussions of lost national vigor two rooting where a fascist movement aided by political deadlock and polarization becomes a player on the national stage three arrival to power where conservatives seeking to control rising leftist opposition invite fascists to share power four exercise of power where the movement and its charismatic leader control the state in balance with institutions such as the police and traditional elites such as the clergy, clergy and business magnates, and then radicalization or entropy, mm-hmm, where it mm-hmm. either becomes more radical like Nazi Germany or slips into traditional authoritarianism like fascist Italy. Yeah. Reading that and having it been written in 1998, and <laughs> yeah. it is like uncanny how the Republican Party in the first half of the, 20, the first fifth of the 21st century has like followed beat for beat every part of that right yeah. if you follow this this thread of the sort of the the proto and then tea party itself and then following that through into the trump base and then and then the whole QAnon thing and all, if you put all of those things which sort of seem to occupy a kind of similar space to each other and think of them as a movement they follow beat for beat this yeah right i think that is that is the difference now is that that you have to put these disparate movements together to see the process because you have these groups coming at this from different directions you have the QAnon people you have sort of traditional nazis you have christian nationalists you have um radicalized sort of republican conservatives you have people coming at this you have the sort of militia movement and it all fe- it's all feeding in and trump donald trump has crystallized this um in a way which you know, before Donald Trump's presidency, these groups seemed quite separate. You know, you you, you had things like Gamergate and things like that. 
Um, and they seem, mm-hmm. you know, worlds away from, say, the, you know, the sort of traditional Christian nationalists or, you know, Christian fundamentalism in the United States. But the person yeah. of Donald Trump has allowed all these movements to come together in a way I think they were always tending towards, but they needed that catalyst. They needed a single figurehead. And Trump has provided them that in this interesting way. So rather than being a coherent movement from the beginning, um, which, I mean, I suppose, again, like it's a simplification because no fascist movement is completely coherent from the very beginning. But 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 Donald Trump has sort of brought these disparate movements together in a way which I think makes it seem different from, say, a kind of organized fascist party um, uh, that you've had in, in, in sort of the obvious historical examples. But um, I think this is probably the way we're going to see the far right operate in the sort of internet age. Um, mm. uh, the, but yeah. the, the, the material and historical conditions of early 21st century America are very different to those of 1930s Germany. Mm-hmm. And so the form that the, the, the fascist phenomenon takes is very different. Yeah. Um, but I do think you can, you can make a strong argument for saying that, it, that you can think about it, at least you can think about it as the same phenomenon. It's a kind of postmodern fascism, right? Very much so, yes. It's all these different groups um, that are alienated from one another being sort of welded together rather than being a coherent kind of philosophy. It's bits and pieces of different ideas, ideologies that sort of exist in tension with one another in many ways but can be directed towards the same end. I think there's a particular dynamic, um, which we're starting to see emerging now, um, of how the material condition of the internet, as we currently have it, has affected the formation of the extreme right. Which is that before, there used to be a dynamic pretty much of extremist and white nationalist groups would try to organise themselves by onboarding people into the organised local movement or chapter. Uh And then they would grow in influence and power eventually until basically one of them does something stupid or extreme or violent in a way that attracts the attention of things more powerful than them and then they end up getting shut down and the whole thing gets disbanded or prescribed as an organisation or whatever. And, and you see this has been happening for decade upon decade upon decade. That's the cycle that it takes, right? Mm-hmm. They try to organise and then it ends up collapsing at some point. And the internet has provided a way out of that, right? You can, you can spot, um, if you take official US government statistics on membership of white nationalist groups, it continues to rise throughout the 2000s until about like 2011, where suddenly it drops. And the argument is, that's not because the movement stopped growing, it's because it went online. So instead of organising through local, more formal groups with clear membership structure, they don't really have members so much as they have email lists. Right? Um, yeah, and they have forums, 4chan. You know, 2011... Yes, exactly. 2011, the white nationalists drop, you know, numbers drop. They all go online. 2012, Gamergate. You know, it, it, it's right. it's 4chan. It's, now it's 8chan and 8kun, and it was parlor until that got shut down yesterday. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it's all these sort of online forums and social media uh the trade-off is that that allows you to get around this cycle of always collapsing when you get to only a few hundred members um because um even if someone does a terrorist attack or something uh they're anonymous and often the people organizing it don't even know who the people that they're broadcasting their propaganda to are yeah stochastic they're disconnected from each other enough that it doesn't collapse in the same way no because that's plausible Um, deniability yeah, but the flip side is that they don't have very much control over them individually, so they can't organise, uh, like, the KKK used to do marches mm. through, you know, minority areas, but 
the alt-right doesn't do that so much because they don't have the kind of personal connection to each other in local groups no. that would allow you to organise something like that. So you end up with people who are in a position that traditionally they would be in an extreme white nationalist organisation, but at the point where the next step in the radicalisation process would traditionally be you're a member now and then you're given some orders and something to do, right? At that point, when they're just at the point where they want some orders, at that point is the point where the online form of organisation can't do anything for them. So they're just left there sort of stewing. They, they build up this, the ideology and the propaganda and the headspace of fascism to the point where traditionally the next step would be and now you take some action and then are just left to stew in that moment for ages until usually some of them will then do some blown wolf attacks. Yeah. But we've, I think we're starting to see the longer scale dynamic of that play out now because it's, it's happened I think you can read this Capitol Hill attack as like the second run through of this cycle which we can now spot as a cycle because it's been run through twice the first one ended with Charlottesville yeah and then and then the and then the cycle is reset and started again and this is the second one yeah right? so I think what's happening is something a bit more like the traditional structure where, where the organisation reaches a certain point and then they try to take action and then it collapses mm. is it has been slowed down massively to the point where they can grow to be much, much bigger, but also can't do anything until at some point they feel like they have to do something and they try to take the movement now it's now that it's much bigger than the traditional white nationalist, much bigger but much looser than the traditional white nationalist group. And they try and take it offline, at which point it dissolves on contact with air because they're not organised. Yeah. And that's happened twice now. Yeah, because, I mean, you, you yeah, I mean, I think you, you're, you're, you're right about certainly Charlottesville because, you know, the people who are big in the run-up to Charlottesville, people like Richard Spencer and uh, Milo Yiannopoulos and, you know, whoever mm. else. You don't hear so much from them now. Now it's all, you know, it's not Richard Spencer and the alt-right. It's now it's it's the Proud Boys and, and it's these new groups. Um, and, yeah, so I think definitely that first Charlottesville marks a sort of a slump and a lot of the people who are important in that moment have become less so. So yeah, I suppose I suppose the question is then: Do does this moment mark another similar slump um, as you're saying, or is it merely a sort of, you know, does 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 the slump after the capital attack, um, does it result in back to the drawing board, or is it just a small dip and then they start building again from a much higher yeah baseline? It'd be hard to say. Yeah, but of course this time they've lost a lot of their entrenched state power right they don't have the white house anymore basically <laughs> no well do they keep i mean that's the question as well is if if richard spencer and people like that stopped being so important after charlottesville because they were sort of shown up a bit does trump is trump shown up a bit by this does, is this the point where the movement drops trump as its central figurehead and if so what do they do without him i've been surprised by how wide it's gone of them them being Will they surprise me with how willing they are to attack other Republicans, even Republicans who are formerly quite close to Trump, mm. including Mike Pence and, and, and you know, the one who they don't seem to be going for is Trump himself. Yeah, right. I think he's still on the right side of this movement. Yeah. Um, I know I'm not particularly plugged into the alt right because I, I try not to become. I try to maintain some level of sanity. Yes. Um, but uh, since he has now, since that, since that day, he has flipped quite a bit and, and saying okay I'm now officially conceding the election I'm giving up yeah I'm not coming to the uh, inauguration but I'm going to stop fighting this 
um, and all of you need to stop being violent and go home. Will that be enough for them, for them to feel betrayed enough to say Trump's on the other side now? We're now no longer Trump supporters. We're full-blown QAnon people or whatever, or whatever else. they crystallise around next time. But but without Trump, is there something for them to crystallise around? That's the question. I think. Yeah, that's the thing. Because because if if we accept the thesis that it required someone like Donald Trump to bring these disparate groups that have been building and building for the previous sort of couple of decades together into one one sort of movement, does losing him mean that they need another figurehead? Mm. So I don't know who that would be. I mean, you've got people like Tom Cotton, but Tom Cotton didn't support overturning the election. There's Josh Hawley who supported the overturning the election and was seen sort of fist pumping the the protesters when they were still protesters. But then after they broke into the Capitol, um, he seemed to pull back a bit. So I don't know who. Maybe it's Trump Jr. He's been mm-hmm. he's been very vocal online, and he he's quite um, he. I think he has that combination of sort of low cunning and boisterous energy that his father has um, yeah might make him a, a plausible but I don't I just I don't know if anyone I don't know if anyone can replace Trump in certainly in the short term so I, I wonder whether if they don't have a figurehead in a person to cohere around what do they cohere around because yeah. the sort of tradition well, I think there's, there's a certain amount of evidence to suggest that there that authoritarian psychological profiles fall into two quite distinct groups mm. the, which you might loosely call the leaders and the followers mm-hmm. um, and the follower profile they really really want to follow someone they will probably find someone to follow but will they all find the same person to follow yeah yeah because if we take the five stages model that i mentioned earlier the fifth stage is radicalization or entropy right? exactly so probably i imagine because diff- given that this I don't know if you could call this a fascist movement because part of the stages is stages three and four are that they have come to power, right? And I suppose the reading would be that stages four and five involve being sharing power with cons- traditional conservatives and then exercising power in balance with traditional state institutions. And basically, in this instance, the the other half of both of those were more powerful than they are in most historical fascist movements, right? Yeah. So the traditional conservatives and the and the deep state, as they would probably call it, were more powerful than this insurgent force in in the Trump administration compared to like the relationship between Mussolini and traditional groups like the Catholic Church. Mm. Right. Um, so it doesn't quite fit the model. No. But it's so so the question is how much will that affect the final step, radicalization or entropy? Because that assumes that they'll still be in power. Yeah. I mean, I suppose the other question is, can they cohere around a thing rather than a person? Uh, because the, yeah. the traditional sort of conservative movement from the 1960s, late 1960s onward, began to cohere around abortion rights. And to this day, that's the yeah, thing. Yeah. Before that, interestingly, many, most, a lot of people don't know this, but many, if not most, evangelical Protestants were pro-abortion, or at least didn't care about it. It was the Catholics mm. who mostly voted Democrat who were anti-abortion, as you know, the official position of the Catholic Church was, yeah, yeah. and then and then from the late sixties after Roe versus Wade, when abortion was legalized across the whole United States, the the it started to to change, and the 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 right wing politicians seized on abortion as an issue they could use as a wedge issue, and then after the politicians adopted it as a campaign platform, then it became the sort of core issue of evangelical protestants to the point where now the organized christian right and the sort of evangelical protestant right in particular is wholly committed to 
banning abortion to the point where many of them voted for Donald Trump solely because he promised to put anti-abortion judges on the bench, despite the fact yeah. that in many other ways he's sort of the antithesis of a conservative Christian. Um, and a lot of them were surprisingly, and to me, actually quite impressively, aware of this fact. Yes. They were saying, no, I don't like Trump, but he's doing this. Yeah, they knew. I really, really wish leftists would have that level of eyes on the prize. Yeah, but they knew. Ex- they knew exactly what they were doing. That, that's the difference between um, what you might call the kind of sort of conservative, sort of traditional conservative Christian right, and the more radical sort of white supremacist right. Is that the, the although there are a lot of sort of Trump supporters who are Christian, um, a lot, a lot of them um, sort of somehow do this thing where they reconcile those facts and they're like yeah trump's great he's sent by god but there is a yeah, yeah. but they're sort of more traditional evangelical protestants are like no we don't like trump particularly he's an immoral person but he'll ban abortion or he'll get abortion banned yeah. um yeah I, I i do i do think i pretty much agree with the idea that that fascism is not just conservatism but more so because no. there's differences of yeah there's qualitative differences yeah but my, see, but, they yeah. do fascism will work with any other ideology i mean it will work with socialists or liberals if they if they let it um it's just that generally speaking it finds it easier to work with conservatives mm, mm-hmm. but yeah um, my, my question is is if traditional conservative christians can cohere around abortion as their sort of platform rather than a person can fascists do that can they find some yes. something some policy or some idea that they can cohere around that will act or alternatively will most of these will most of the people who are involved in this at the moment, will it just degenerate into uh, traditional conser- radical conservatism? Because mm. it might. You know, yeah, I suppose it might. It, might, might, yeah. it might lose the fascist character. I mean, I don't think I don't think the QAnon people are going to go back to that. They might have started, no, that, right? But I don't think they'll go back. So I think probably that's that that's at least a likely outcome is is that some of them, probably most of them, will end up slipping into traditional sort of authoritarian conservatism, and but a minority of them, the craziest group. <laughs> will continue to get more radical and more conspiratorial and possibly, I think, therefore, more violent. Mm-hmm. And the sort of the balance between how many of them do one and how many of them do the other is going to be the story of the Republican Party for the next four years. So stay tuned for that. It's not good. I'm sorry. It is not good. It's really not good. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not going to keep... It's not going to stop getting worse until we do actually undermine the material conditions that are driving this. It's almost as if capitalism is bad and it makes fascism yeah. happen. Yep. Yeah, that's the problem with Biden, really. As a, as a, that's the problem with the, with the popular front idea. The idea of leftists must ally with moderates in order to beat the fascists, which is that that can work. Uh, it can work as a tactic. It can't work as a strategy. Yeah. Right. It 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 will disappear. It would work in the short term. It won't work in the medium term or the long term. Yeah, it breaks down. Um, like it did in Spain. Because the 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 status quo represented by the politics of someone like Joe Biden. What it means is maintain the material conditions roughly as they are already, or even accelerate them, because lots of the material conditions that we have are things which are in dynamic movement, right? So you can't... Maintaining the status quo doesn't mean keeping the climate the same. It means the climate continuing to deteriorate, for example. It doesn't mean inequality staying at the current level. It means it getting worse rapidly. (laughs) So maintaining that will make the superstructure including the fascist parts of it, continue to accelerate in the direction that it's already accelerating until we undermine it by changing the material conditions. That's the problem with allying with centrists against fascists, which is that not 
it's overstating the case to say that centrism is creating fascism, but it's uh, it is it is maintaining the the material status quo in su- in in the current configuration, and this is the current configuration that is leading to the current political consequences. Yeah, yeah. I got on my soapbox for a bit there. That's good. <laughs> no, that's good. I've been on mine for most of the last half an hour, so. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, please get on yours. People don't want to just listen to listen to me talk. Goodness, no, yeah, yeah, no one wants that. I certainly don't. I've got to edit this. If you remember, you know, I, I sit down and edit it, and I've got to listen back to me talking. I'm like, oh no. And I get to the David's bit. And I'm like, oh yeah, David was really insightful. That yeah, that was really good. And I get back to my bit. Like, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. Oh, I wish I said that differently. Terrible. Yeah. But it's always the one. I'm trying to get. I'm trying to get. Around, I'm trying to get this somewhat subtle distinction through without hand wringing too much. Between saying that it's it's not a matter of it, or it's, it's a simplification and an overstating to say um, so it's what some people talk about the economic anxiety argument of, of these people are um, we shouldn't be too harsh on these people because they're being driven to fascism by the neoliberal status quo that's overstating the case and it's it's bad practice to sympathise with the devil um, but that is a slightly but very importantly different point from saying that fascism as a social phenomenon arises out of particular material conditions which are being advocated for and accelerated by the neoliberal status quo right mm-hmm. so that's a pithier way of making the point yeah and it is also true that many conservatives and even some liberals will actively side with and support fascism if the alternative is moving to the left yeah yeah totally it's also the case that that um <laughs> most people most individuals who are under the personal circumstances that that these fascists are under don't turn into fascists because of those conditions, right? No, and and it's also right. it's also the case that fascism draws more from what was classically called petty bourgeoisie than it does from the proletariat elements of the yes. working class. Yes, in the strict sense. I mean, you see this with the people in, in the in the sort of capital insurrection. You know, you had one of the main people was like a uh, who's been sort of profiled like a uh, the ceo of a small boat company right these aren't rich and powerful people but they aren't poor either they aren't they aren't working class in the sort of strict sense they are people who may have some of the cultural elements of being working class but in terms of their financial situation they're often reasonably well off they have just enough that they're worried about losing it i think that's the key point is that people who turn to fascism have have enough to be scared about having taken away from them and they they think because they are told by elites that what's going to the people who are going to take it away are immigrants black people queer people jews whoever it is this week and they believe yeah, exactly. that and, and that's you, have, how you have to be in the in the um the the privileged demographic right also yeah. it's someone yeah. who was in that material condition i mean i'm Race is a material condition, right? <laughs> of course. But if, if you were in that class position, let's say, um, then but you were, uh, I don't know, a Guatemalan American, you're much less likely to, for that to lead you to become a fascist rather than yeah, uh, a white person who had the same class position. Yeah. It's, it's a bit similar. It's just reminded me of the whole incel thing, right? Mm. Which is that the the germ of truth in it is that we do have a loneliness epidemic in late capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's rampant. It's a massive, massive problem, and this is basically an outgrowth of that. But the point is that that's is that 
if there's a demographic that pro- that is that is affected by loneliness more than any other, it's the elderly, right? Mm. And it's certainly not uh, uh, young middle class white men, right? No, yeah. Uh, but that is the that is the group which has taken their being affected by the loneliness epidemic, which is affecting all parts of society. That's the one part that has turned it into extremely violent misogyny, right? Mm, mm-hmm. Lots of women experience loneliness as well, um, but they don't become Elliot Roger, right? No. It's, it's yeah, and it's it's because these people are privileged in other ways, um, and and they and they they feel very strongly that when things when they perceive that things are being taken from them, like their you know what they see as their traditional role in society of having a wife and kids and a job and a house and a car, a picket fence, you know, in, in the American dream mm. kind of model, when those things are taken away from them, they they find it easier to rationalize that as the fault of people who are now becoming relatively better off relative to them you know as small gains are made by women by people of color uh, by queer and disabled people by by people of different religions as you know small gains are made by them and you know straight white middle class men feel themselves losing something they make the inference that the people who are making small gains are taking that from them, and and th- mm. you know, and this doesn't happen in a vacuum. This happens because that's what conservative media tells them, right? In large part, at least, that's that's, that's because Rupert Murdoch tells them that every day, you know, on Fox News or in the pages of the Sun in this country or whatever he owns in the Australia. I can't remember the name of his Australian media c- companies, but he's got them. You know, people like that. They tell them this every day, and they believe it because you know, yeah. So there's limits to this kind of um, standpoint epistemology. I, I do have an element of old-fashioned humanist universalism in me. I do think that anyone has the potential to be able to understand what's going on. Of course. And empathise with other people. Of course. Um, but if you're in these particular demographics, you're in a position where you're more likely to be able to fall for the the propaganda that it's not the ruling class's fault that all this is happening. Yeah, yeah. Because you're in a position where you kind of feel like you might one day be part of it, I think is a large part of it. You know, mm. people in sort of lower middle class white communities in America kind of buy into this American dream myth that one day they're going to be rich. And I think it's the same thing going on with, with, with fascism. They kind of buy into the idea that one day they're going to be part of the ruling class and then, and, and then, then it's easy to identify with them and therefore it's easier to blame minoritized groups and uh, whereas if you're working class and not to say there are no working class racists or whatever because there are of course but if you're like you know working class in the strict sense of you are a proletarian who has paid a you know wage which is barely enough to live on etc etc um because all your labor is being expropriated by capital you are more likely to know damn well you're never going to be part of the ruling class therefore you're less likely to identify them with them therefore even if you are white and male and straight and all these other sort of relatively privileged categories because you are because you can't bring yourself to identify with the ruling class you're more likely to identify with your sort of fellow proletarians from other backgrounds and again it's a question of probability is right it's just it just this is why it explains the trend that more people from the lower middle classes tend to support fascism than people from the working class not that there aren't both hmm. but yeah it's also um Marx always thought that this was the main reason why 
uh, the, the, basically the history of segregation and slavery and racism in America, not to say that there isn't in Europe also, but um, mm -hmm. the, the particular history of it in America is the reason why socialism never took off there like it did in Europe, basically. It's because the, the, the white element of the proletariat saw itself as being more allied to the ruling the white ruling class than it did to, um, mm. to, to the, the black element of the, ruling, of the working class. And also the fact that um, not even not even necessarily having anything to do with their attitude, but also they simply, especially during slavery, knew full well that if they tried to organise, they could just be replaced with slaves. Yes, yes. It's because the material conditions affect yeah. the political reality. <laughs> which is, I mean, which is exactly what happened. I mean, in the early days of the American colonies, there weren't that many slaves being imported. They mostly used indentured servant labour. Um, but mm. then those indentured servants, being as they mostly came from Europe, um, were able to acquire more political rights um, and then they were like, "Shit! Oh, we don't, we can't control these people to the same extent anymore. We better you slaves instead." Yeah. Also, it got a bit cheaper, but but there's a political element as well. Um, like Marx had quite a good political sense as well as his theoretical and economic stuff. Mm. Um, like in the context of his political campaigning during his life in Europe, uh, the main thing that he was campaigning for was the forty-hour work week, mm -hmm. which is something we already have now, <laughs> um, because that was the uh, it's how socialists organise, right? You want to be a couple of steps ahead. Yeah, enough to open up the Overton window and open people up to other possibilities, but still imaginable enough that it might be achieved over the medium term, that 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 it's that people can really imagine it as happening. Mm. But also it being far enough away that it seems like it's it's a real shift and therefore opens up people's imagination. Yeah. Um, but his point about was not to campaign for that in America. It was the main thing that you have to campaign for in America before you can get anywhere near working class is end slavery right because any attempt to form a working class movement in a society where a good serious percentage of the population are enslaved will just you'll get nowhere you have to abolish the slavery first i don't really know where i was going with that well i mean i hear some way you could go with it i think to a large part that remains true today you know um not that you'll get nowhere but that you will not get nearly as far with a working class movement in a country which is has heavy racial inequality Mm. Um, campaigning for racial equality not only is it a good thing in its own terms of course but it also serves the socialist cause the the sort of the more strictly narrow economic socialist cause in that it makes it easier for proletarian groups of different races to identify with one another if there are less strong racial divisions in the society and therefore mm. it means that working class power can this be built more easily. This is the problem with the argument that you get sometimes of of we should focus on class rather than identity politics as if that's even something that you could do because you it's it's not when when you say you have to focus on both it's not just because both are important and therefore we should focus on both it's the fact that unless you focus on both you can't focus on either yeah, right you, it's you get it's precisely not taking identity politics as it were it's a bad term but terrible let's just keep using it for now um not focusing on race gender lgbt uh, whatever all those issues is not if you don't take them seriously you're also not taking class seriously mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. it, you, it's it, it, you will have a better class analysis if you include a racial analysis and also a gender analysis and all the others and you will make allies yes you will not you know you will not make strong bonds of allyship with people minoritized groups unless you include the issues that affect them directly, you know, hmm. in your programs and in your analysis, you know, you you won't, you know, the 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 left in America has in 
recent years begun to much more take on the cause of black people the 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 kind of the divergent sort of black civil rights movement and the sort of economic socialist movement which had been quite separate i think for the last couple of decades i mean they 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 they, they came together in the 60s but but i think had had diverged again um somewhat uh, during the 80s and 90s and 2000s now they have come back together in large part and socialists and black rights activists are more and more the same people and it's no coincidence that both are doing better you know Mm. the, the, the socialist movement and the movement for black rights black lives have both grown in size and in social influence in the last five years hugely and it's not a coincidence that it is because you know it happened at the same time that they have also forged stronger links with one another you know <laughs> yeah 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 massively important and you see this is a thing that um that struck me earlier today which is that if you're 25 years old currently you have lived through 10 percent of the entire existence of the usa huh, huh. right <laughs> It's a, it's quite a young country, yeah, and for yeah. most of that, black and white people were not even legally equal. No, right. <laughs> so, the the absolute central importance of the of racial politics, along with all other forms of politics. This is, I just want to make it absolutely clear because you get this sometimes to British leftists who talk about race politics as if it only happens in America, but Britain doesn't have it. Mm-hmm. We have it too. Mm-hmm. It's different. It's specific to our conditions, but anyway. Um, the central importance of racial politics in America is, is, uh, cannot be overstated, right? And and it, it's, uh, it's something which cannot be separated from the class dynamics of American society. Um, I think in the British Labour Party has, and the British working class movement in general, I don't think has ever really reckoned with the fact that the the working class is the least white class in our society, basically, right? Mm. <laughs> when you say. British working class people imagine uh, like a northern white man with reactionary politics. <laughs> yeah, when that's not the the middle. Of, not that someone like that couldn't be working class, but that's not that's not the one kind of working class person. No, and being young, or being uh, a woman of color, or being in a precarious job rather than a factory job. These are all things that like people literally get called middle class on the basis of that rather than working class or having progressive politics it's, a, it's right? absurd you know people people will be called middle class um for you know who like work as barristers in coffee shops and people will call them mm. middle class you know like, you, you do not yeah. just do not understand what you, you you don't you don't have a meaning of that term that extends beyond cult, yeah. beyond sort of cultural signifiers that term has become completely divorced from all sort of like tangible meaning and material conditions it's become yeah. a pure whereas someone in term. a town in, in <clears throat> Pardon me. Someone in a town. What's that? <laughs> Someone in a town in the north of England who has a mortgage and on forty k a year and two cars, but because they're a middle-aged white man, they get called. They they have more right to call themselves working class. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. I mean, this always annoys me. Jess Phillips. Right. I can't stand Jess Phillips for many reasons, not least because she's an awful transphobe. But um, yes, that's the worst one. <laughs> but um, but one of the things that that winds me the hell up about not just Phillips herself, but about the way Jess Phillips is covered and talked about. Less so since she joined the actual front bench, because now she's got an actual job to do. But when she was just a backbench MP copying from the sidelines, she was always covered as the voice of working class womanhood. But her her, her dad was a teacher, fairly uh, sort of uh, senior teacher, and her mum was a doctor, the deputy chair, 
of the local uh, health association, uh, the the local um, NHS sort of um, right trust, right? She's not. You'd call that that's at least like lower middle class. Yeah, she's she's middle class, right? You know, her, you know, her dad's a teacher, her mum's a senior. I mean, it depends on how you call it, right? Because that's that's still yeah. Both of those jobs are pretty proletarianized these days, and they have been pro. Yes, they have certainly been proletarianized, but but um, but you know, uh, but it's it's not the same thing as the voice of the working class, the most working class MP or whatever. You know? Yeah, but because she's got a northern accent, they just or a she, Midlands she, accent anyway. Yeah, well, exactly. But because she's, she's our, she's our got... southern is showing. <laughs> but yeah, but that but that's how it's always framed by the media, on, right? Because right? they're also based in, in London mostly, so she's, you know, because right, she's. <laughs> She's a plucky northerner who, as you rightly point out, is from Birmingham, which is hardly halfway up the country. Um, yeah. You know, not even halfway up the country. Um, she she's, she gets to be the voice of working class womanhood. She's, yeah. she's never been near a working class job. <laughs> you know. It's not just about that. It's about... I, 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 get, I get you. I'm, I'm you know what I mean, right? Like, it winds me up. It's a matter of, of class being thought of increasingly through a set of cultural signifiers. Yeah. And... Um, rather than through any material analysis. And that shift in the conception of class really, really suits right-wing analysis. Yeah. And I don't think that those cultural signifiers are irrelevant either. Um, no, no, I you don't. You know, access to, to sort of high culture and to sort of the, the trappings, the, the sort of, of, of that culture to sort of conspicuous consumption, you know, having a, a nice car and a nice house, you know, but also having, you know, uh, I, I, I'm not, for example, denying that my having an RP accent doesn't make it easier for me to move around in society than if I didn't have one, right? It does, but it isn't constitutive of class in and of itself. I mean, I, I see it all the time. People just people just take you less seriously if you don't have this accent. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and, and but 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 the mere fact that I have this accent doesn't make me, you know, suddenly upper middle class, right? You know. Yeah, yeah it's, not, it's not the same thing as class. Yeah, it's not the same thing as class, right? It, it's perceived in a similar way, and it's, it's, and it's kind of part of this sort of nexus of what class means. Yeah, yeah, and it's like, this, this came up in a lot of the... Uh, this came up in a lot of the post-election analysis of saying that um, that the the class being a predictor of which way you vote is disappearing. Um, and the argument was that it's completely disappeared by the 2019 election. Um, and I think that there's there's certainly a realignment around class and party political lines happening but people always pull out the abc1 c2de measure of class yep and then measure that against your voting behavior as if that really means anything but that's really not that's a really really bad measure of class right it's it relays heavily on these cultural signifiers and it was invented by the advertising industry to be able to target product advertisement so it's fully like coming out of the of the of a of a simulacrum of class rather than material conditions of class so there's obviously sort of different um ideas about what class is the traditional Marxist notion, but there's there's a more modern idea of what class means, which um, is heavily influenced by uh, Anthony Crosland, the sort of Labour right-wing figure in the 1960s and 70s, and, um, and, by, new, right. and, and by New Labour, who sort of followed a lot of his thought, um, where class is seen as being much more fractured um, so rather than having sort of, you know, Marx's idea of these big, chunky classes, you know, proletarian is anyone who works for a wage and all this kind of thing, right? You instead have these sort of micro-classes that, that compete with each other, not just in terms of economics, but also in terms of status and 
Um, and this is where that cultural element comes in, right? Um, hmm. And it's it, well, it, Marx's it, argument was that there's that all societies have very very complicated class structures, and that feudalism had had you know had villains and peasants and yeomen and yeah, 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 and, yeah. and whatever, and then the different guilds and all, and all that stuff. And his argument was that that the uniqueness of capitalism is that it has a tendency to collect classes into these yes. two mega classes, and everyone is forced into one or the other. Yes, exactly. Um, and this, I suppose, this kind of analysis is is, a, is an attempt to deconstruct that type of class analysis and returns to this idea of of numerous different classes. And I'm not saying that that analysis is completely fruitless because I think in some hmm. in some you know it, for some things it is relevant. For example, whether someone is a man a manager like a middle manager in a in a company versus what's working on the shop floor, they might both be paying a, being paid a wage, I very much agree. but one of them has you know more power. Um, hmm. But and it was always Marx's argument. Marx was never arguing that most of the working class was this kind of, um, this kind of clearly kind of proletarian factory labourer type. He was always aware that most working class people were in service work. There were lots. There were lots of maids and gardeners and and you know chimney sweeps and stuff going on, which don't fit the traditional picture of the factory worker, factory owner, etc. He was just making the point that there's a there's a particular quality to factory workers which is that they're very um they are good for organizing around unions and strikes basically yeah but yeah so i, I but that this this return to this kind of multipolar class analysis has its uses but it, it is also it also has the problem that it can collapse the other way and the cultural status element of class can be sort of teased mm-hmm. out and made the sort of primary thing i guess it does get interesting you know there's there's there is lots to an- analyze around mm. um the intersection of class and culture. It's just that that making class as an idea simply or primarily about culture, and and not even about culture, but about about a highly about obfuscating the hierarchical element of it as well, mm. and just saying that these are just cultural groups and sort of individual signifiers of of those cultures. As yeah, well. yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Although I do still reserve the right to make fun of my housemate for drinking posh coffee. Um. <laughs> Where I drank instrument, and they always they always make it in the cafetiere. Oh, a cafetiere! <laughs> See, I tend to drink quite posh coffee in that sense as well, but it's just because I don't really drink very much coffee, so I only make coffee when it's posh. Ah, so yeah, I, I don't drink... even make it in a cafetiere. I make it in a in a mocha pot. Ah, uh, well, there you go. The yeah, I the, the kind of stovetop espresso. I drink instant coffee. I like instant coffee, and I make. Put here we go. You can hear my you can hear my accent going back to back to sort of <laughs> as I'm talking about it. It, do, it do, you know, there it is, there it is. It's the it's the class signifies. But I I make a point of not drinking too much posh coffee because I never want to get to the stage where I acquire the taste for it and then can't drink instant coffee anymore. <laughs> right? Do you know I I had the cause to drink quite a bit of instant coffee a few weeks ago. Yeah. Um, because I was uh, it doesn't matter. Um, and. I was really surprised by how good it is. <laughs> it's really good. Like I, this is really not that different. No, to the, I like the gold that bun. I spend much more time making. I like the gold bun, uh, which is a slightly smoother roast. Um, and I can drink. I can drink that. But I mean, I drink it by the mug, the mug full, just because it's considered polite. But I could drink it by the bucket full if, if uh, I consider drinking any coffee to be quite posh. <laughs> I drink tea, which I think of as normal. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't like tea. I've never liked it. I'm sorry to say. I have to give yeah. up my British card. I, I think there's an yeah, it's, it, that's a that's an interesting quirk of the politics of class, which is that coffee seems somehow more foreign and therefore more posh. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, I, I don't get that so much with coffee, I suppose, because my I grew up with my dad drinking instant coffee, so I'm sort of used to it. But I do get that with other foreign, you know, sort of things that are coded as being sort of more more foreign. Mm. Do, I do find... I'm aware that, that that's a very culturally specific thing, because there are lots yeah. of people who would see tea as being posh. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, probably most people. I think especially world. outside of Britain. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And Ireland, right? Definitely. Well, well, in the West. In the I know West. worldwide, a lot more tea is drunk than coffee. But not the kind of tea that we drink. Oh <laughs> uh, no! Not, yeah. like no one, no one's drinking no. in a mug with milk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. From they, a bag. People in sort of China and, and India drink lots of different types of tea, um, uh, but none of them are the kind of tea that we drink. Um, yeah. So this is a, this is a conversation I have with someone about how about whether tea or coffee were bourgeois, <laughs> right? Uh, and this is an online discussion, right? And and there were some basically there were some far eastern people from far eastern countries posting something on the lines of it was a thing that came up a lot in the comments was um, only the British kind that comes in a bag is posh. There's <laughs> right? loose leaf tea, that's not posh. And there are a lot of British people saying, really? That's where I, am. I imagine loose leaf tea as being way more posh yeah. but in this, tea from a bag. In this country right? it is, right? In this country, if you have yeah. loose leaf tea, that's quite expensive. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's probably the other way around in China, right? Yeah, because it's, mm. it's not, not the way things normally are, so the, the, the sort of supply is much lower. Yeah. 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 No, it is, it is fascinating. It is fascinating. But um, it shouldn't be the be all and all, and it shouldn't even be the starting point. Yes, but it's a, but this particular dynamic to bring it back to the thing mm. of how of how talking about class in cultural terms leads to these kind of endless anal- analysis of things that are really, really, and uh, sort of getting bogged down in the quagmire of it uh, means that it's really, really good for obfuscating economic class relations. Yeah, because if you can get people talking about this, then they'll never get back round to talking about how mm-hmm. the ruling class are stealing our surplus value, <laughs> right? And they've got all the poshest coffee. Yes. Yeah. No matter how posh the coffee is, then my housemates drink it. I guarantee you, the queen's got posher coffee. She probably doesn't drink. Yeah. She probably only drinks tea, but she, she probably got posher tea as well. So there you go. Should we talk about um? Should we, should we talk about uh, this country a bit? Because uh, we did a lot about right, yeah. a lot about a lot about America earlier, and I think it was definitely very important that we did so. Um, we've also had a time of it lately. Um, and we have finally, uh, for practical purposes, left the European Union. Of course, we had officially mm. left the European Union a year prior, but we were, for practical purposes, still in it because of the transition. Yes, in the transition period. We have now left the transition period. And to my mind, I think the most significant result of this is that you can no longer bring a ham and cheese sandwich in the cab of your truck, wrapped in tinfoil, to the Netherlands as a mm. HGV driver, which I personally think is a bloody crime. Um, it is. And, that was one of my favourite pastimes. Yeah. Uh, I generally got annoyed about this when I read this article. <laughs> my partner thought I was, I, was, I was like, this is why people don't like the EU. It's stupid shit like that. Yeah, yeah. Like, you can't bring a ham sandwich <laughs> for your own personal consumption. I, w- I will agree with Nigel Farage and every other right-wing nutcase that that is ridiculous. <laughs> but yeah, there are some other consequences too, so we should, we'll talk about those. Um, yes. So, yeah... Um, where to start? I've been going it. Well, going it two hours. Why don't you start? Yeah, you say something interesting while I try and fix my the, brain. The central, the the thing which dominated a lot of the twenty sixteen referendum campaign, and which has now come to pass, is freedom of movement, mm-hmm. which has ended. Mm. Right, and uh, I'm looking forward to having unemployment no longer be a problem in this country. <laughs> <laughs> And also having a much, much lower benefits bill, so the national debt will be sorted out also, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> That's going to happen. Oh, and the NHS That's gets an extra 350 million a week, I think. 
Oh yeah, yeah. Well, they yeah, probably right. are now, yeah. aren't they? I, oh, well, at least I hope they get at least that. But um, <laughs> God, blimey, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the it's so hard to get your head around this stuff. It's easy to talk about fascism in the United States, so, you know. It, it, yeah. Because I think I think the thing is with 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 Brexit, and we've talked about it before in this podcast, is that a lot of the consequences are so up in the air. We know yeah, it's going to yeah. be bad, but I don't think we know exactly how it's going to be bad. Um, so, I mean, we know that it's already probably um, the the entire process since the referendum happened has probably already caused our GDP to contract or, or, or to grow to, you know, to, to, to be about 6% less than it would have been otherwise, uh, the estimates say. Mm. Um, um, and that's only going to worsen over the coming years. Of course, the Conservatives will be hoping that they can disguise the initial economic shock of the sort of Brexit trade deal. Behind their spectacular mishandling of the COVID crisis. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think to an extent they may well be successful in doing that. But I think in time, the effects are going to become clearer. Um, Mm. And one particular area where it's already beginning to bite is Scotland. So this is really what I wanted to talk about in particular today, because you know, mm. it's the start of a new year, and a lot of people are already talking about Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP and a second Scottish independence referendum. Um, Boris Johnson has said he's not going to authorise one. Um, Nicola Sturgeon said she's going to push for one anyway. So, mm. it's going to be a clash of wills. And I have a sneaking suspicion that Nicola Sturgeon's got a bit more backbone i don't know what you think yeah yeah i agree i think she's just a she's a higher caliber of political actor yeah so the next scottish election is coming up this year it's this year yeah it's on the 6th of may which is a thursday as elections always are in this country don't ask us why i'm sure there is a reason but i have no idea what it is off the top of my head i'm sure someone once explained it to me and it wasn't important enough for me to remember it (laughs) is it I'm almost certain that no one has ever explained it to me because it's exactly the kind of unimportant but interesting fact I would have remembered. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so Scottish elections in May 2021 at the same time yes. as uh, the biggest batch of local elections in a long, long time because all of last year's were obviously cancelled. Because we've had to delay the last year's ones. Assuming, yeah. of course, that we can even hold this set of elections. But, but let's, hmm. for the moment, assume that the vaccine and, and and other processes get far enough that these elections can be held in some way. That's a big assumption. We'll talk about that at a future, a future date. Let's just... Um... So the reason why the first Scottish independence referendum happened was that the SNP managed to win an outright majority in the Scottish Parliament despite it being a proportional system. Yeah. Right, that was the point when they considered themselves to have enough leverage to try and force a vote and mm. the coalition government let them have it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, how this election plays out... I mean, the, the Tories have said that they're going to try and block it no matter what this time. Yeah. Um, but it, it will undoubtedly have some impact on how this plays out, depending on how well the SNP do at this uh, election. It might have uh, an effect vice versa as well, come to think of it, but because um, the SNP are specifically pushing for this and are saying they will be able to go out on the campaign trail and say, if you vote for us in these elections, it will make a, sec- a second indie ref more likely. So they've got a clear narrative and policy that they're pushing for. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if we look at the polls, there haven't been any since October, is the first thing to say. So, um, take this with a big pinch of salt. 
But if we have a look at the polls, the there are two types of vote for the Scottish elections. There's the constituency vote and then the regional vote if they have an additional member system. Okay. Um, so there are a bunch of constituencies just like in uh, first-past-the-post election, but then there's top-up whereby it's made more proportional um, on the basis of a regional vote. And well, I won't go into the details, but that's the basic idea. So there's two numbers for each party, basically. So um, the SNP at the last Scottish election got about 42% in the constituency vote. They're currently polling at about 46, or they were as of October. They got about 50% in the regional vote. They're currently polling, or were as of October, polling at about 55. So they are doing better after five years of majority government than they were last time, which is unusual. Mm. Plus the fact that in the intervening period, we have had... So if you look, if you look at the... Um, if you look at the the polling at the beginning of 2020, they were doing significantly less well than they were in October. They're actually doing slightly worse than they did in 2016. Right. A couple of points down. 2020, pandemic, hmm. and all of a sudden they are up, up, up. Like many incumbent parties around the world. Yeah, they gained about 10 points in the regional vote, and they gained about um, uh, 7 or 8 in the uh, constituency vote. Since October, when the last polls were conducted... Um, they, uh, we have had more Tory incompetence with the handling of coronavirus, and a big part of the pitch from Nicola Sturgeon at the next election is going to be the SNP handled the pandemic much better than the Conservatives did in England. Wouldn't you like to be in an independent Scotland where the SNP wouldn't have had to deal with Boris Johnson at all and we'd have handled it even better? I think that is pretty clearly going to be a big part of their line. Yes. And the polling was suggest also, that It's worth just taking a moment to mention the, that the Scottish Green Party are also pro-independence, and their polling got a bit above what they got at the last election, at least in the um, the, uh, the the party vote. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, really... It... I just want to remind people that, that, that um, yeah. Yeah. The, the SNP aren't, aren't the whole of the, um, the independence movement. No, there's also the Scottish Socialist Party, of course, uh, which did, yes, did yeah. have an MP... Um, I did have some MSPs previously that I have in the moment. Um, hmm. But yeah, I mean, I, I, that is a very good point, and thank you for bringing that up. But I think it will more or less come down to how well the SNP do as to whether a... Oh, absolutely, yeah. As, as to sort of whether a, a, a referendum is possible. Um, so on the basis of those numbers, and given the, in the intervening time, I think the key attack line that the SNP are likely to bring has become more salient, not less. Plus the fact that the Conservative Party have lost their sort of previous leader in Ruth Davidson, who was pretty good, you know, in yeah. terms of her skill as a politician. And well-liked. And now they have a guy called Douglas Ross, who I've never heard of. <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh, I think I've heard the name, but I don't know. I don't really know much about him. Um, and, I, and I follow politics more closely than most people do, although I suppose not specifically Scottish politics. Nevertheless, one suspects that that's going to damage the Conservatives as well. Um, Labour is led by Richard Leonard, the uh, sort of relatively left-wing sort of Corbynite type uh, sort of lib- uh, leader. Uh, the Greens have co-leaders, as the Greens are wont to do, uh, Patrick Harvey and Lorna Slater, 
And then, of course, there's the Liberal Democrats bringing up a, probably the rear with Hilda uh, by Willie Rennie. But um, it seems likely to me that the SNP are likely to do pretty well in the next election. Probably they will yeah. maintain their majority. At the moment, it looks like they might even increase it. So the SNP have this long-running um, sort of structural advantage, given that they are an incumbent governing party, which is that they can... They've got the bully pulpit of being the governing party, but also they are able to get the advantages of being the opposition to Westminster. They can, they can <laughs> present themselves as the underdogs and as and has having a uh, an authority above them that they can blame for things that have gone wrong. Um, especially towards the end of their main policy, which is that they want to get rid of that uh, authority above. So let's assume that the SNP win 2021 Scottish elections, that they maintain their majority, um, perhaps even increase it slightly. What happened? Hmm. Well, at that point, there's a standoff, right? If, if they if they don't do very well in these elections, maybe they'll take that as a signal and they'll back off from trying to push for Indie Ref 2 now and play a slightly longer game. If they do very well, mm-hmm. they're going to say, we're not going to get an opportunity as good as this for a while. Let's go for broke now. Um, and then there's a standoff between them and Westminster. And who blinks? That's the question. <laughs> yeah. Who do you think? Um... <laughs> Well, it's hard to say, right? Because what bargaining chips do the SNP actually have against Westminster? Westminster says no. What can the SNP do about it? Well, the SNP can hold an advisory referendum. Right, right. And the thing is, referendums in our system are always advisory anyway. Yeah. So if if the SNP don't get authority from the Westminster government to hold a, a sort of official referendum, they can hold a sort of unofficial advisory one. Right. I suppose at that point, the, the Westminster parties can refuse to campaign in it. But if yep. they do that, I imagine that they might get slaughtered in the Scottish elections. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and if they do campaign in it, then they'll essentially be legitimising it. Yeah. And either way, I think, having been refused a referendum by the uh, sort of British government, which is seen as in Scotland, and is increasingly, I think, seeing itself as the English government, um, particularly as we've talked about before, mm. during the coronavirus crisis, where it has had to function, essentially, as the English government in respect to health and education policy, because we don't have one. Um, so it has essentially had to be the English administration as well as the UK government. Um, and and given, given that, in this scenario, a, a, a referendum would have been rejected by that government, I think whether the opposition parties choose to campaign or not, or the, the unionist parties, I should say, um, that's going to surely massively increase the number of people who are going to be pissed off with the UK government and are therefore going to be likely to vote. Mm. And it's... <laughs> well, yeah. I think Boris Johnson might well back down and, hold, and, uh, yeah. and, and give authority to hold an official one, but at a yeah, later yeah, date. Yeah, 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 I think that might be what it comes down to, is squabbling over the timing. Hmm. Because I think the SNP want one quite quickly, where the memory of the failures over coronavirus and over Brexit are still fresh. I think Boris Johnson might try and pitch for one held later in the in, in this parliament uh, in, in both parliaments I suppose, in, in both the, the British and the sorry, I keep saying British, I should say UK in both the UK and um, Scottish parliaments um, I think he might want one in say 2023 something like that Yeah, I don't know if the Scots will go for that though I don't know if Sturgeon will go for that I don't know, it will be very interesting I suppose it would come down to who has control of the time frame, because if the, if the SNP are saying uh if, if Boris has already said, I'll let you have it, what incentive do they have for taking him up on that rather than just holding it when they want it? Um, and he's publicly said that he wants to... that he'll he'll have it anyway. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's hard to work that out in advance. Right. Maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't. 
Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it certainly could be very interesting. Um, <laughs> I think that a Labour government would have eased these tensions at some point, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're not going to get one even before 2023. Uh, and I th- still, at this stage, I think Labour are going to win the next election anyway. Um, but I remember um, the in the last referendum campaign, it did have a bit of a surprising impact on English politics. There were some positive consequences. People started to imagine other possibilities. And they were like, wow, Scotland's going independent. Why is Scotland going independent? And then the Scottish debate, the internal debate of the Scottish political culture, becomes setting the tone for the entire UK political culture. And mm. it's quite a bit more progressive than the English culture. And English mm. people get a sort of look from the inside of a country which works differently. And mm. I, I certainly remember last time, a lot of people rather liked it. Right? And we're like, why can't England be more like that? So there is the concern for an English leftist that if Scotland goes, how are we ever going to get the Tories out of power ever again? But I think that it's possible that English voting patterns might shift in the absence of a Scotland. I think it certainly would to a degree. I suppose the question is, how and would it be enough? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I was, in, I was actually in Scotland uh, over the summer before the referendum, uh, doing some work, actually, um, for my father. We were we were fitting out a hotel with uh, furniture. But yeah, mm. I, I remember the atmosphere then being, this was about August, and you know, the, the, the referendum was in September, so it was quite, quite, quite sort of close. Yeah, I remember yeah. the atmosphere among the sort of Scottish people being quite febrile, I suppose. People were really excited for it. Yeah, yeah. It totally. really created much more than they were in advance. I mean, because I, I come from a uh, a very, as, as you, a very sort of UKP part of England, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I remember the run-up to 2016 EU referendum very well yeah. as well. But it wasn't the same kind of excitement even among so even in a in a in a sort of area which you would think would be excited for it, right? It's it's yeah. sort of I don't know if that's just because they thought they would lose or not. I don't know. But then I I, I don't know that the the sort of pro independence people in Scotland necessarily thought they were going to win. I just think there was this real invigoration to the public debate, which I think regardless it was, it was of whether actually you, really good. yeah, regardless of whether you support independence or not, I think that was really good and and. And, um, it had some of the flavour of Corbyn mania. Yeah, like, of, of, maybe, yeah. Of the moment when things suddenly seemed possible. A foretaste of that, maybe. Yeah. Well, actually, my read on this is that I think that since, like, the early 2000s, the tone of most people in Britain has been that they hate the two-party system. And then we've seen a series of attempts to break it, which have come from all sides. Clegmania mm. was probably the first. Or, or, or at least, oh, um, uh, what was his name? Who was the Lib Dem leader before Nick, Nick Clegg? Oh. Uh, it was, it was Campbell just before Nick Clegg, but then before that was Charles Kennedy, who I think. Was Charles Kennedy, about. that was it, yeah. Yeah. That era, that era, the 2005 Lib Dems have over 60 seats moment, where they're the, yeah. the anti-Iraq war party. Yeah. Right? Um, and then Clegmania, and then um, also... There, there were a lot of them <laughs> around the first half of the 2010s. There was the Scottish independence thing. There was the Greens had their little moment where they thought they might be going to get another couple of MPs. Um, you had the Brexit was another one, mm-hmm. the rise of UKIP, uh, and Corbyn. I think these, these are all jumps by different groups of people to try to get out of two-party blatcherism, you know. 
mm-hmm. and some of them are more depressing <laughs> than others. Yes. And the two of the least depressing were the whichever side you were on, the re-emergence of the, sort of the democratic sublime in both the Scottish independence referendum and the massive expansion of participation in Labourism. What a beautiful Corbyn. term, the democratic. Where did, you, where did you get that from? I've not heard that before. I can't remember where I heard that before. I didn't come up with it. I've, That's I've beautiful. Heard it it. I'm going to assume you came up with it. Um, Thank so, you. So, <laughs> the, pod, the, the Revolutionary Dispatches podcast canon is that David Bryan coined that term. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. I'm just looking at a map of the vote from the last referendum. It's really, I mean, it is very interesting. I mean, as you would expect, the sort of two border um, regions, Dumfries and Galloway and the Scottish borders, uh, were the sort of heaviest for... Uh, no, along with uh, the islands, Orkney and Shetland. Mm-hmm. I think because in Orkney and Shetland's case, they see themselves as being, you know, as much oppressed by Edinburgh as they are by London. And I think that's yeah, a yeah. valid point. Um, yeah, very much so. It's been one of the problems with devolution is that th- there has been a long-running trend, kind of, arguably started by Thatcher, arguably, but it was already a little bit before, of um, local government being hollowed out and sucked into the central government. And mm. devolution can be read as a, as a, re- as a partial reversal of that process, but also it's kind of, it was just a different form of that process. So it did yeah. push some power from Westminster down to Cardiff and Edinburgh, but also allowed those two places to continue to suck up more power from Scottish and Welsh local government Definitely. into the devolved administrations. Yeah. The only places that went for independence were Glasgow, um, Western Bartonshire and North Lanarkshire, which are sort of both next to Glasgow, Glasgow and have a lot of suburbs in them, as you might expect. And mm-hmm. then Dundee. Dundee, there you go. My nan's from Glasgow, so so I suppose I, I should support independence. Although I don't think my nan actually did support independence. But she didn't get a vote. Because right. she doesn't live in Scotland right. anymore. So there you go. Ah. Which but I think is wrong. Thing is, a really important thing to notice is that the, the, a common thread between Corbyn mania and the independence referendum it was the massive expansion in participation in politics. Yeah. The Labour Party membership increased something like fourfold and is still like over three times what it was in 2015 and also the SNP very nearly overtook the Tories in, um, in in membership figures even though they only stand in Scotland yeah it's still and, and Labour became the biggest the, the biggest sort of um, party in Europe didn't it for, for a time yeah yeah the biggest social democratic party in, in Western Europe I think it might I think still so. be yeah well I, I, yeah it's lost a fair few but um, but yeah it may well still be uh, yeah yeah and as um, this is one of the the, what I think will be remembered as one of the longest-term worst failures of Corbynism was the l- relative lack of democratisation within the Labour Party. Mm-hmm. Um, and it compares quite badly with the SNP on that front. So, uh, mandatory reselection or open selection if you prefer, was one of the main things that the Labour left were trying to push for um, and still are, in fact. Um, which is the idea that local constituency parties should basically be able to choose their own candidates uh, and to change their mind whenever they like, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the SNP just already have that, and always have. Right? Mm. It's not a terribly unusual thing to ask for. The Lib Dems no. do as well, I think, actually. I believe so, and the Greens, I think. Although, they only, well, only got one. one but, yeah. <laughs> but in theory, yeah. Yeah, and obviously, yeah. there's no way Caroline Lucas, Caroline Lucas has that seat for life if she wants it. Yeah, but, yeah, um, totally. but in theory. Uh, yeah, anyway, so <laughs> e- even now... The, well, okay, the most recent figure for both is from 2018 and 2019. But the Conservative Party has 191,000 members, and the SNP has 125,700 members. <laughs> so almost the same number of members, even though 
the Tories are a nationwide party, and the SNP are only nationwide. Well, indeed, <laughs> Labour's yeah. far far in excess of both of them. Yeah, over half a million. It got up to six hundred fifty thousand at one stage, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's Labour's membership more than trebled. It was already more than twice the Tories. <laughs> of course, yeah. Well, it's a. It ought to be really. I mean, I think I think if Labour's membership was you know less than the Tories, I would that be it. Wouldn't it? Although, yeah, yeah. You know, having said that, in the fifties, I think Tories had the bigger membership. Um, yeah, well, I think they calculated it very weirdly. <laughs> did they? I mean, so did Labour, to be yeah, fair. There was, there was a big me. shift in how both parties calculated their membership figures throughout the 50s and 60s. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's, let's take a hypothetical for a moment. Let's assume that Scotland holds this referendum and votes to leave. What do you think that does to politics, both in Scotland and in the rest of the Hmm. It could do a few things, right? Um, it kind of depends on how... And what happens to the newly independent Scotland, to a great extent? Mm. If there is this other country that used to be like, very, very recently part of this country that is independent and consistently has governments much more left-wing than Britain, I think, it, a very, I think it will become a common talking point on the English and Welsh left to say, look at Scotland, they're doing things differently, it's going really well for them, why can't we do it too? And it will be quite a hard argument to, uh, to ignore. Of course, we won't be able to call ourselves Britain anymore. Well, yeah, what would we even call the United Kingdom? The remainder. The United Kingdom of England and Northern Ireland... <laughs> And continue to yeah. snub Wales. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that's the thing, isn't it? Is that it, it, it's the United Kingdom because it's the Kingdom of Great Britain and the Kingdom of Ireland, right? mm. and then when we lose most of Ireland, it's not really the United Kingdom anymore. We kept the name. If we lose Scotland as well. Mm. It's really only the Kingdom of England plus Northern Ireland because Wales has been integrated yeah. to the Kingdom of England since the 13th century, so it doesn't count mm. as a separate kingdom. Sorry, Wales. It's also um, the fact that Scotland, Scotland and England were united by both parliaments passing acts of union. Right? Yes. So it can claim to be not just England and its colonies, but if it's just the bits of Ireland that had deliberate British plantations in... Mostly Scottish, it must be said. Yes. And a Wales that was conquered by the English in the Middle Ages. Mm. It starts to look a lot more, a lot less like a union of kingdoms and more like just England and some countries that it's managed to colonise very successfully. Well, that, I mean, that, yeah, so that's the question I was going to ask, is what, what happens with Wales then? Because I, I, I should I should ask in, in, in uh, what my, my, my housemate would be would be devastated if I didn't. She's a, she's a, she's a bit of a Welsh, Welsh nationalist as it goes. And, mm. um, and yeah, I, I, one does wonder if Scotland goes. I think on the, because a big part of Welsh independence now, right, is that an independent Wales, and I had this conversation with said housemate, she didn't much like it, but there we go. Sorry. <laughs> An independent Wales is going to really struggle because the power of England, the economic power of England is so great that an independent Wales would end up, I think, in many ways, basically having to do in terms of its economic policy what the English wanted. It might have a bit control, more control over, over tax and spend. Uh, it's in terms of, sort of monetary policy and things like that. It's going to be in hock to England to a significant extent. Most of its trade comes from England, so it's not going to be able to put up big tariffs. Um, and I think it, 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 most of the Welsh economy is not particularly well diversified. Agriculture is a large sector, but it doesn't really do much export to non-England countries. Um, there's, there's a tourism industry, um, although how well that will survive COVID, I don't know. But I think Wales, in economic terms, 
it would struggle with independence. Yes, there are a lot of practical problems with independent Wales on this basis because it's, it's transport links up yeah. between different parts of Wales, especially South Wales and North Wales, are often routed through England. Um, it, it gets a lot of its media from England and not, not local media. The fact that the major economic centres are Cardiff, Swansea, Liverpool and Chester, yeah. two of which notably are in England. Hmm. Um, Northern, Northern Wales is oriented towards Chester and Liverpool, not towards any city in Wales. So there are some no. huge problems. However, if Scotland goes independent... Yes, and I think all of those reasons, the, like you won't survive on your own, is not a great argument to be making for why it's a good relationship to keep going, right? Um, it's, it might be a very practical argument, but it definitely means that there is... That's, that's not a good thing, right? That's a bad thing. Even if, the, even if they are to stay, we should still be trying to end that dependence. Of course. Right? Yeah, I mean, so, I, think, I think you can't be a leftist and not think that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no English nationalist leftists allowed, please. Yes. So if that debate starts to become a thing, I think that's what we need to start insisting on, is that, yeah. is that if anyone makes the argument Wales can't survive on its own, the argument should be, okay, well, if we're going to try to keep them, we need to end that situation as well. Yes. Because kind of that situation is precisely the reason why a lot of people want to go independent. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and it, it's the, the cultural sort of devastation of Wales as well over, over the centuries. You know, the, the, the deliberate campaign to sort of try and eradicate the Welsh language, which fortunately wasn't mm. successful, but was, you know, substantial and, 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 and was successful in many areas. Um, There's one symbolic thing that I've heard some people mention, which is that when we have the next monarch we will also have to pick a new Prince of Wales. So yes. the suggestion is, maybe we should take this opportunity to end the practice of always making the Prince of Wales an Englishman and the son of the of the current head Englishman, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, that yeah. was a tradition which was started in the Middle Ages precisely as a symbolic humiliation of Wales. So maybe yes. we should take this opportunity to just... It's free. <laughs> we don't need to... You know, we can just stop this one centuries long insult to a country yeah. that we're trying to convince to like us. Yeah, I, was, I heard Michael Sheen say that on uh, the uh, to Owen Jones. Right, right. Uh, the other, the other, the other, the other weekend interview with him. Yeah, no, I absolutely. Yeah, I, I remember um, like, the, the the original situation was um, that the English king announced to the crowds of Welsh people that he will announce as next Prince of Wales a person who speaks no word of English. Right. Mm -hmm. that it would be an entirely Welsh speaker. Uh, cheers from the crowd. At which point you then held up his baby son. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Edward II. That's it. And was that baby? Future. Well, that's future that's where the tradition of the, the heir to the English throne is. It's the British throne now, um, but it was it comes from the English throne, yeah. Um, that the heir is the Prince of Wales. Because Edward I had defeated Holland the last. Uh, the last of the Romans. Uh, he, he has the Colin the Last has the the distinction of being the last monarch of a su direct successor state to the Roman Empire, um, because uh, he was uh, prince of um, uh, Gwynedd. Um, so yeah, Colin the Last, the last of the Romans, as well as the last prince of Wales. Mm. But yeah, no, I quite agree. I mean, that, that would be like an obvious thing to do. It won't bloody happen um, because obviously <laughs> the unlikely, royal family yes. is built built on traditions that. Uh, aggravate right-thinking people, but yeah, it would be good. Mm. Um, yeah, although Edward the Second was gay, so you know, first first English Prince of Wales, gay man. There mm. you go. Progressive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's that's what we need. We need LGBT people to be campaigning to keep monarchs. the title of the Prince of Wales. 
More gay Welsh independence of, is homophobic. Yeah, it, instead of giving the the title to the eldest uh, eldest son yeah. of the English uh, of, the, of the monarch, it should be given to the most prominent gay man yeah. in 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 the, in country. the aristocracy. Yeah, I suppose it's I suppose it's Stephen Fry at the moment. Isn't it? Uh, uh, yeah, probably Stephen Fry. Can't think of a more prominent gay gay man than Stephen Fry in, in the UK. Is it most prominent person who is gay, or most prominently gay? Most prominent person who is gay, I think. Right. Most prominently gay. Well, that's a difficult question. Julian Clary, perhaps. Hmm. But, yeah. Prince of Wales. God. Nah, he'd he'd go for princess. You know. He yeah. Would. <laughs> the synthesis would have to be the most prominently gay Welsh person. That would also be good. Although I have absolutely no idea who that would be. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I can think of. Oh, it might be Owen Jones actually. <laughs> Oh no, he's he's actually, he's, he's actually born in Manchester. Yeah, he's, well, he's born in Manchester. But his his heritage, family are Welsh. But, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Interesting. There we go. Um, Owen also, Jones, like I, I just totally Brackets, think maybe. that they, Owen Jones wouldn't even accept like a knighthood. <laughs> he wouldn't accept. Being made no, but I think he, I wouldn't. He wouldn't accept a knighthood, but he might accept. I wouldn't accept a knighthood, but if someone offered to make me a princess of Wales, I'd take that. You know? Yeah, yeah. That's way better. You know. Yeah, you better. get you get HRH, don't you? Yeah, exactly. And it would also be really funny to have a communist, a communist member of the aristocracy, um, <laughs> like um, Kropotkin, right? Was he a member of the aristocracy? He was a prince, yeah. Oh yeah, but in Russia that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> well, no, no, because they had so many. Like it's like in Hungary where like they did have a lot. Yeah, I think there was more aristocrats than there were bourgeois. Yeah, I mean Hungary is even more so. Like like twenty percent of the population in, in Hungary, sort of prior to the revolution of eighteen forty eight, was technically a member of the aristocracy. Hmm. Uh, but none of them had any money. I'm pretty sure um, he gave <laughs> up his title as well. I'm sure he did. Yeah, I, mean, I, would, I would hope so. Yeah, right up until the point where all Russian aristocrats had to give up their titles permanently. <laughs> what did he survive to see the revolution? He did. Yeah, I had yeah, no he's, idea. Later he than survived you think. to see the revolution. Yeah, he died in 1921. So he saw the revolution, but not Stalin. Wow, that's mm. that's good. Well, I mean, not not Stalin's sort of personal rule. He was disappointed by the Bolshevik state. Yes, I'm sure he was, but at least he didn't yeah. didn't seize the rule of Stalin. Yeah, what was he? Uh, Pyotr Alexievich Kropotkin, born of an mm. aristocratic landowning family. You're quite right. Father major. His father was Major General Prince Alexei Petrovich Kropotkin, a descendant of the Smolensk branch of the Rurik dynasty, who had ruled Russia before the rise of the Romanovs. Oh, oh, there you go. I think I'm a terrible historian. I didn't even know that. <laughs> it's not really my I was, area. I, uh, I yeah, I was going to say, there's something as recent as the 1920s, and you're not going to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do, I do ancient ancient, ancient religions, mostly. Yeah. You want to know anything about Herod the Great? I'm your gal. Um, okay. So, yeah. Welsh independence, Scottish independence. Do you have anything more to say about that? We've gone off on a bit of a tangent. Mm. Yeah, we have. It's... Basically, it's hard to say what the consequences of any of them would be, um, mm. but I do think we've got some quite clear responses, right? If, uh, the, what the English left should do about it is pretty clear in both cases. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. What we 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 ought to campaign to make the causes for, you know, sort of the economic and sort of. Mm. Uh, uh, tough on independence. Tough on the causes of independence. Well, I mean, I don't think necessarily tough on independence. <laughs> yeah, I, know. Um, I, I think we should be tough on tough on the sort of material reasons for the for independence. You know, that's what the left should do. What the Labour Party should do, I think, is, is less clear. The Labour Party yeah. is going to be really discombobulated by it either way. Yeah, because obviously my position is, you know, if 
Scotland or Wales or Northern Ireland or you know Cornwall for that matter want to be independent than they ought to be. Uh, yeah, um, I don't think it's up to us. Um, regardless of how good an idea it might be from a practical basis, obviously we should try and make it a free choice so that they don't have. There isn't a practical consideration. It's a purely sort of. Yeah. I mean, what I actually think should happen is that I think we should have a federal UK. Yes. Well, what I actually think should happen is we should abolish all states. Um, <laughs> yeah, depends what, how far are we push. Depends on what level you're yeah. talking. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think Scotland. We should have a United Ireland, an independent Scotland, Wales, and England. All of them become independent of the UK, and also, along with Northern Ireland, join the Republic of Ireland. Right. Right. And that therefore also rejoin the EU through the Irish membership, and have have the Dublin government rule. The whole archipelago. Yeah, just for just for a couple of hundred years or so to yeah, get to, to balance um, it out. <laughs> yeah, and then we dissolve the entire thing into a network of mutually supporting anarchist communes, mm. um, and we can we can keep the we can we can keep the the Julian Clary as Princess of Wales, um, mm. and I think yeah, sorted. Yeah, abolish the monarchy apart from the position of Julian Clary as Princess of Wales. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Position not just for life but for eternity, like like yes. um like Kim Kim Jong Un, yeah, Kim, like, Kim, yeah. Uh, Kim Wilson, yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah, it's like an eternal dear leader, mm. yeah. I think he's the president, right? And that's which is why the others always have such weird titles. Is that it? The living ones are are never actually president because Kim Wilson still is. Okay. No, yeah. A necrocracy. It is a necrocracy. Super, no, supreme leader. He's supreme title. leader, okay. But he is eternal. Oh no, sorry, he was supreme leader. Now he is eternal president. Hmm. Right. So he is etern- he is eternal president and Kim Jong il is eternal general secretary and eternal chairman of the Defence Commission. Mm. And the title of party leader was changed to first <laughs> secretary. Terrible, isn't it? Eternal that's fine. <laughs> that's cool. Eternal chairman of the Defence Commission. Rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But also like presumably the current because they had to change the party leader from general secretary to first secretary. What happens when I when I mean, who's Kim? Kim Jong Un. Kim Jong Un is he? Um, yeah, Kim Kim Jong Un is 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 currently first secretary. Mm. So when he he dies, like he'll be eternal first, first secretary. Prime minister. Yeah, and and then someone else is going to have to be something. And then who's going to be? What, what's the next Primary one going to be? Secretary. They're going to run out of names. Well, of course, we're doing it in English as well, so they'll have presumably they're naming these things in Korean, not in English. But... I would assume so. Yeah. Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> that would be that would be weird for uh, for maybe, for maybe it's much more sensible in Korean. It's just a joke for all the English speakers. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. yeah, yeah. Who knows? You have to pay to read Ur fascism now. Ugh, they've paywalled bloody the original Ur fascism essay because it's on the New York Review of Books. I'll oh, find it. I'll find it somewhere. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, let's do the sign off then. Yes. Ugh. Ah. Um. Thanks. Oh. Yeah. Right. So, that was an episode, and thank you, and right. Um, <laughs> That's how the sign-off goes, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like our page on Facebook. Yeah, do and that. And follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can find them all by just typing Revolutionary Dispatches into the search bar of the relevant thing. Mm. And Dispatches spelt the English way, remember? Yes, Dispatches with an E. Uh, we're hosted on Anchor FM primarily because SoundCloud makes you pay money and I haven't got any of that. Um, but we do put the, the sort of the current episode and uh, the previous episode on SoundCloud just because people like to use SoundCloud. I'm sorry we can't put any more up, but 
I can't justify ten pounds a month at the moment for for just that. Um, so yes, thank you very much, uh, comrades, for your time and attention. You've been listening to Revolutionary Dispatches. Be absolutely lovely to one another, and viva la revolution.